the Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to the final podcast of this academic year 2018-2019. There's a real flavour of business leadership here because we've done some interviews at our recent business leaders conference for finance directors and business leaders. So you're going to hear from Hayley Dunn, who's our business leader, reflecting on the conference and what the issues are for FDs and business leaders. You'll hear from Louise Hatswell, who also comes from a business leader background. She's our pay and conditions specialist and she's going to talk about Uh, things you should look out for if you are moving from one school, one college, one trust to another because the days of not paying close attention to your contract really need to be behind us. She'll say a bit more about that. And you've also got Dr Fiona Creeby, who was a business leader herself. She's now an academic at Manchester Metropolitan University. Got some really interesting insights into the role of business leaders and how they function best within leadership teams. Added to which, you've got Sean Harford, the Director of Inspection at Ofsted, reflecting on the response to the new framework and the period running up to its implementation in September. And we finish with an interview I conducted whilst walking around the schools overseen by Stephen Tierney there in Blackpool, a great secondary school and primary school and some very inspiring things from uh, a man so rooted in his community and he talks with great passion about what he's doing there. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Sean Harford, National Director of Education for Ofsted. And welcome to our Business Leaders Conference, Sean. So uh, overall you must be pleased in terms of the feedback that you've had on the the new framework. Um, Were there any big surprises to you in that? Uh, we are we were pleased with the feedback, Jeff, and I think that's probably um, a function of the amount of, um, of of informal consultation we did prior to the launch of it with with people like yourselves and other associations, you know, lots of school leaders, getting the inspectors out talking to schools. Um, so therefore, by the time we got to the consultation um, in January, you know, we had a reasonable idea that, of what where the where the, the sticking points might be. Um, we still thought, for example, it was worthwhile proposing the the uh, the idea of going on site because we thought it would make a better experience. Personally, I still think it would do. But you know, we we listened to folks about the in, in their responses to that, and we've we've um, responded um, appropriately. Um, any big surprises in what people are saying? I'm not sure there were huge surprises because of all that work we did, you know, the legwork before. So um, I think it probably landed as we expected. You know, people have strong opinions on these things um, and, we're, and we're always listening to those. We think we're in the right kind of place to take this forward now. And the thing is now it's up to us to deliver, you know, a fair open system um, in, in, in the way we've set out in the framework, which we think is a better place than we've been um, in the past. Can we just nail one myth? Because I saw people putting on Twitter... Uh, you know, you've got 15,000 or so responses. How could these possibly be analysed in two weeks? And what I'm guessing is that the, the way you build the technology actually does the analysis as people are putting their responses in, if that makes some sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a mixture of, of, te- of technological approach. Um, it's a mixture of um, we analysed, started to analyse the responses as soon as they started coming in. So, you know, off the top of my head, I think in the first couple of weeks we had a few thousand of these already. And, um, and actually what we did was, with those early responses, we looked at them and reshaped parts of the piloting as a result of that. So it, it wasn't the fact that we 
had, uh, and actually I'll, I'll just correct something, the 15,000 is the official figure, but there were 4,000 from one particular campaign that was a copy and paste letter. So really there was 11,001. Um, so uh, so, so, that, so it's, it wasn't as big a, a task as it sounded. You know, obviously that campaign was important, but you know, um, it, that, that's, the, that's the true figure. But you know, you're right, we employ a lot of technology and we employ a lot of hardworking people as well. Um, and picking them off early as they come in, um, in, as they did in great number, was the, the, the way that we could um, you know, analyse them and get to the right, to the right place. And last question, because I know you've got a train to catch. You, you made an interesting comment in there about the e-back, which was always a bit of controversy around the e-back and whether you were kind of endorsing an ideological approach and so on. What you're essentially saying is, of course, e-back exists, it's important to the government, but that isn't something which would be uh, narrowly used around the school. Indeed, what you seem to say in there was a school which was only doing e-back would not be offering a broad and balanced curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, um, as I said there, we, we inspect within a framework, that, uh, the educational framework that is set by the government, and we, um, we obviously do so independently within that. Um, but, you know, we need to be cognizant of that framework as set up. Um, that said, we truly think that the EBAC um, does provide a foundation for the Key Stage 4 curriculum, but there's a big difference between a foundation, you know, the list of subjects, and, and a curriculum. As, as, as we know, the EBAC itself is not a curriculum, just actually, uh, frankly, as the national curriculum itself is not a curriculum. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a list of things. But we feel those subjects provide that good foundation to build upon, but clearly youngsters will, want, will need more of that in Key Stage 4 to have a broad, balanced and deeper and rich um, curriculum. What's really important, though, within what the government is saying and how we are viewing this is that the 75% and 90% ambitions that have been set out are that, they're ambitions, they're not targets, they're set in a, in a time frame. Um, and what we'll be looking at is how schools are, um, depending on where they are, you know, with the EBAC, you know, what they're doing to seek to contribute to that national ambition. The, the fact is, of course, that different schools in different circumstances will be at different points and therefore will need a different approach and, um, and we'll take all that into context, into the judgment as, well, as we Absolutely. make Absolutely, you reassuringly mentioned in there that some schools, whatever their ambition about, let's say, modern foreign languages, simply cannot recruit teachers. And, and, and of course, what you know, we need to be cognizant of that could lead to youngsters in that school not getting the kind of education, the quality of education that we would, that we all would want for them. But that is clearly a contextual issue. It's more important what the school is seeking to do about that, so that they can get it in the right place for the children. Sean, you've got a train to catch. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Haley Dunn, and I'm the Askell School Business Leadership Specialist. How long have you been doing the role now, Haley? So I joined Askell in September of last year and uh, today uh, has been a pivotal moment in leading the first of the school business leadership um, conferences. Yeah, it's a big annual event. It's been great today, been a great vibe about it. Just give a, give a quick reflection on uh, who we've listened to, what some of the themes have been. Today has been absolutely fantastic. I've enjoyed it as uh, being the host of today and being able to sit and, and listen to the speakers which have ranged from uh, Dr Fiona Creeby from Manchester Metropolitan University talking about her research project to um, Carolyn Roberts talking about the ethical leadership framework to Janet Street Porter giving us an overview and in a very entertaining way um, of her career and her tips for success. 
And you're rooted in the world of business leaders. Just remind us what your background is. So my background is as a school business leader. So I started off within a local authority schools finance team. And from there, the favourite part of my job was working with schools. And when an opportunity to move into schools came up, I jumped at the chance. Um, And I did six years working in a local authority maintained school, um, a large primary school in an area of high deprivation, before moving into a small multi-academy trust in a more affluent area. Uh, before becoming the school business leadership specialist for ASCO. And I guess one of the things, thank you, and I guess one of the things that you'll be doing as part of the role is you'll get referrals from hotlines. So in other words, somebody will phone in confidence to hotline and they'll say, I've got an issue uh, that I'm worrying about. What kind of issues have you found yourself dealing with? So some of those issues come to myself and some of them come to Louise Hatswell, our pain condition specialist, but by far the largest number of calls that we are getting are to do with business leaders and their conditions of um, service, um, linked to restructures um, and to them feeling a period of uncertainty. Um, and vulnerability and we can help them through those difficult periods. And it's tough isn't it because what we're seeing is schools being merged together into trusts and so on and decisions being made that actually that justifies having one business leader across a range of schools. Is is that the kind of core of the issue there? Yes and um, in some cases uh, making making sure that uh, members making sure that members are um, being treated correctly in terms of is the consultation process happening appropriately into the timescales that it should be, um, is consideration being given to um, the uh, perhaps reissuing a um, contract of employment and that's where the ASCOL membership uh, comes in really handy because we have our employment checking service and I find that really useful when I moved from a maintained school into an academy trust and the uh, legal advisor was able to give me a list of points to query and clarify which I find immensely useful. Yeah last question uh, you've written a book uh, it's called the business leaders school business leaders handbook it is uh, um, published by John Katz publishers if I remember correctly uh, t- tell us what's in, what's in the book. So the book is, um, so it's written uh, by myself, but also more importantly, it's, um, I collaborated with a number of school business leader practitioners. Uh, so it brings expertise and uh, sector voice together. And we cover all aspects of business leadership, um, finance, HR, managing your workloads. Um, and yeah, it's been an amazing opportunity to uh, put together a publication for the, for the sector um, as there wasn't really anything recent out there. So it's been a fantastic project to be part of. Ellie Dunn, thank you and well done on a fantastic conference today. Thank you. Yes, I'm Dr Fiona Creevy. I'm a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University in Leadership and Management. And just before we get to that, what's the journey to become senior lecturer in that? What were you doing previously? Oh, well, actually, I was a school business manager in, in another life. Yeah. Um, I actually started out working in charities and doing business management, so very general administrative, sort of took a step up, did more management work, started getting involved in budgeting, financing, charities level. And then I got involved in schools, and I worked as a school business manager for several years in two different schools. Fantastic experience. They actually supported me to do my CSBM and DSBM and then my Masters, which was fantastic. Uh, I did a Masters in Education Business Management. And at the end of that programme, I actually got invited to come onto the teaching team at Manchester Met and their specialist school business management programmes because they wanted a practitioner experience. And that's what that's what my journey was. And then that led to a doctorate and led and so forth. And here I am. Extraordinary. So there you are teaching, but you're also doing research and you've done yes. some really interesting research. Yeah.
research here, which I think business leaders are going to be particularly interested in. So t- tell us a little bit about it. Well, the research I did was really sort of mo- motivation and inspiration from looking at how the sector's grown, the evolution. I've been part of that. It's really given me a lot, and I wanted to give a little bit back. But one of the frustrating things I've seen is only a couple of key real research pieces in the last sort of five to ten years that talk about the importance of the profession and the key role that it plays in schools. So that motivated me to look more at the practitioner angle in terms of, well, actually, all this change, all this different policy landscape that we're now in, how is that actually impacting on practitioners, how they do their roles, and what professional development looks like in that space? And it's interesting because one of the things you said in your talk is when we talk about the impact they make, that is the impact on children. Isn't yes. it? Yes. Because I think Absolutely. you know people would listen to you and think, oh yes, they make efficiency savings and stuff like that. But actually, we're talking about a really central contribution to teaching, to learning, to progress of children. Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the keynotes this morning was talking about poverty and about actually children being hungry in Lancashire. And one of the people I spoke to in the research was talking about their efforts and the, the school community's efforts to actually raise funds and actually apply for grants and to actually put in some extra time. And all of the work that was done by the business team in the school enabled Breakfast Club for instance, to help children actually be ready for the start of the school day and perform better. And they actually saw happier children, children more productive, great relationships growing, reduction in behavioural issues, as well as improvement in results. Uh, one of the things I said at the beginning of the day, based on what our members are saying to us, is that being a business leader can feel pretty vulnerable. You were reinforcing that, saying that that is the case in terms of the research, but you're also saying that there is something we could do about it. Can you just kind of ex- explore that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that came out of the survey, the focus groups and the interviews that, that I did was that there was a, a real strong resilience in the school business profession and that actually there is a lot of confidence and confidence in the capacity to grow and the capability to grow in the future. But what's really influencing this this sort of mood at the moment, this climate, is the impacts of policy reform and the uncertainties that creates. And actually, the funding pressures on schools and how school systems are changing. And some schools are looking for quick wins in terms of centralisation. And that was the fear, the fear that strikes. And in some cases, there were people who were talking about redundancies they had to make or that their job was under threat. But other people, actually, a lot of people saw the positivity and the opportunities in this to upskill, develop and to grow and to argue for more. And finally, business leaders, uh, because of their position, may often feel they are the last people who should be going to networking events, going to conferences and so on. You're making a very strong case for investing in your own professional development because basically it's your team and your community who benefit. Absolutely. There's never been more onus on the individual as there is now, but also about the individual asserting that need because more and more what I'm seeing from the research, from seeing from talking to practitioners, looking at different conferences I've been to, talking to practitioners, looking at blogs, the uh, professional body's point of view. What's happening here is that actually, because the role is so isolated in school and, uh, and we're actually an increasingly school-led system and the whole local authority is stepping back, it's actually up to us now. And that's the issue because CPD now isn't just CPD. It's not about, oh, I want to learn something new or I want to actually do something a little bit better in the future. It's actually a core function because it involves networking and mentoring. And they're actually now core, core parts of the role simply because without each other we can't grow and share good practice because we're isolated in schools. So it's really important to get out there and actually argue that networking actually in conferences like this one today is really important as a core function of the role to bring that back into school and to keep the finger on the pulse. Mm. Dr Fiona Creedy, thank you. Thank you. I'm Louise Hatswell, I'm the Pain Condition Specialist for Askill. And welcome to the team, because you've joined us fairly recently, Louise. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, For the last 18 years, I've worked as a school business leader in various schools across Rotherham. Uh, My last role was as a Director of Finance across three schools. 
Great. And in terms of the job now, uh, for those people who, who don't really know what it might be you're dealing with, what is it you're dealing with? Um, I deal with all issues to do with paying conditions for school business leaders, head teachers, deputy head teachers, assistant head teachers who are members for ASCAL, uh, working with the school teachers review body, presenting evidence to them to uh, assist with the pay increase for teachers, um, looking at policies with multi-academy trusts on pay uh, and appraisal, um, working with members, inquiries that come through complex inquiries from members, uh, a variety of stuff really. And I guess we're in a much more complicated world than we would have been back in the local authority days because in a sense, I mean, this is a generalisation, but it's probably accurate, I think, it, w- whatever your role, when you move from authority A to authority B, you probably didn't look at your contract because contracts were pretty much the same. Now, when we're dealing with, well, 3,000 trusts, uh, as well as local authorities, you definitely need to look at your contract, don't you? Can you just give us some insight into the kind of things people ought to be looking at? Yeah, it's, I think that's really important. Uh, we've gone from having probably 170 employers to like 3,000 now, and, and there are differences now coming through. Uh, things you need to check are what your hours look like, uh, any holiday entitlement, then make sure it's reflective of the... Uh, statutory requirements but also if staff are stupid across to make sure that they're receiving the benefits because the, the benefits from the MJC arrangements would transfer with them and to make sure that uh, any uh, arrangements like that are protected for support staff but also for teachers to make sure that their contracts are in line with this STPCD document and that things aren't being eroded from that. So members will phone up because they want to ask for clarification about something which may be in a contract when they move from one school to another. But you're also working with employers in a sense, or at least on behalf of members, you're looking at what employers might have in their uh, procedures and in their policies. Off the top of your head, are you able to say the kind of things people ought to just be aware of in terms of policies? Uh, yes, it's making sure that uh, all the statutory uh, obligations are met. Um, academies obviously don't have as many things that they have to comply with. They've got more freedom and autonomy, but we do still expect it's good practice to follow a lot of those. So, um, in contrast, some of the multi-academy trusts have not don't adhere to the 1265 hours for teachers. They have longer working days and things like that. So it's just important to check that all those and, and that they're not actually required to be in school in the holidays, things like that. So it's things that you take for granted. But actually, unless you look at the fine print, sometimes they can be things that are standard practice for those multi-academy trusts that you don't actually realise. So it's really important to, to look and to use the ASCO contract checking service as well if, they, if they're a member. And finally, if, so if somebody wants to do that, if, they want, if they've got a query or there's something keeping them awake at night or there's just something nagging away at them, what do they do to make contact? Uh, they can ring hotline or email into hotline. Uh, there's always somebody available. Uh, if the hotline staff can't deal with it, it's complex, they will pass their complaint onto me, their query onto me, and I will get back to with them. Uh, no query is too small. You know, we're all there to help them, and it's nobody should be having sleepless nights. Louise Hatwell, thank you very much indeed. Stephen Tierney, CEO of BebCMAT. And we're walking around uh, uh, across the schools in the Trust, uh, Stephen. Just tell us about um, the intake of the schools you've got here in Blackpool. Uh, in terms of kind of intake, you would look at uh, Christ the King, which is a primary school we've just worked on, uh, and it averages around 55, 60% of pupils from free school meals. Uh, you walk into St Mary's, uh, and although you're above average for national um, in terms of free school meals, the real key to get hold of is that 23%, nearly a quarter of pupils, come from the 1% of most economically deprived areas in Blackpool, sorry, in England. 
Uh, and so Blackpool, it's, it's, it's understanding the depth and the density of deprivation and the impacts of that. I'm just walking around here, what just strikes me is A, the sense of calm, B, how immaculate the place feels. Uh, what, what is it that, you know, government ministers, if you're listening to this, who have you know, committed all kinds of things on the, in the name of social mobility and there's opportunity areas and so on, what would you be saying really needs to happen, which is going to make the proper long-term difference? Um, I think there's two things. Invariably, you come to funding and you've got this issue where um, St Mary's over three years is £700,000 below the national funding formula. And dealing with that levels of deprivation is bonkers. So there's something about the average and ensuring that we uh, make sure that the schools in the most deprived areas at least hit the average. And then there's also the place Just give based. us that hack- hackney point you made earlier. The, 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 the hackney. So hackney has a very similar level of deprivation to uh, Blackpool. Yeah. But if I was ahead in hackney, I'd have £2.8 million pounds yeah. per year more. Yeah. Yeah. You need to take into account, obviously, it costs more to employ teachers. Yeah. But the difference in the funding, which is still here because we're not a national funding formula no. yet, is, is, is massive. And I think what we need to do is to aspire towards the hackney because of what London has managed to do yes. in terms of funding. So, so in calling this an opportunity area, a, a, a first easy hit would have been to say, OK, well, let's immediately bring schools in that opportunity area to the national funding formula yeah. level. Yeah. So, so your core funding is not undermining the rest of the work you're trying to Correct. do. Okay. And then you're looking at uh, the idea of place-based change. But, but Blackpool, I would say, has been a basket case for decades. You're not going to change it in two or three years. Yeah. You need a 10-year programme and you need to hit across education. You need to hit housing. You need to hit social care. You need to hit health. You need something that joins up and, and isn't just kind of like, what do you want to do? It's, OK, let's have a look at some of the things where there might be strong links between them or there might be evidence within certain areas areas to work on and the thing is that over 10 years you can have a very carefully managed and staged because when you have these short interventions the problem is loads is thrown at the place everybody just ends up confused we try and do lots of things and they end up doing them badly and you were saying that head's response in terms of some of the, the various projects with the opportunity area plans was we, we can't take another initiative yeah it, what happens when you have uh, these short-term projects is you've got to put a lot of change in a very short space of time mm. and you can see a moral imperative for that in terms of these pupils need the best they can get but what happens is you undermine that moral imperative by doing too much you end up doing it badly so you don't get that improvement that's required and one of the things I mean, we're going to chat about the Key Stage 3 Literacy Programme later, is that it's a very carefully managed process with critically significant resources going to the school for time for senior leaders, whereas quite often initiatives involve people coming from outside, Mm. being paid a lot of money, and then the schools who are implementing it get next to nothing to do with it, and it falls apart. It's just not coherent. But when you talk about long term, even say with the research school, that you're you're coming to the end of the second year of that, there's one Mm. more year guaranteed of it, and then who knows what. So even with that, where people might have said, well, three years, you know, that looks like long term thinking it really isn't is it to, to change change communities like blackpool round you're looking let's start with a decade let's start with something of a decade and think about what we might want to do over that time so so to bring in the the, the key stage three program we spent a year planning it yeah. now you've got to think about so if we're thinking of a decade long we need a high level almost one year planning program to say right these are the things and to test them out and what might this look like on the ground and can we cope with this and what kind of resource do we need and and not this right we're going to do opportunity areas right what's next let's go because the basic concept 
of place-based support I think is right because there are some areas that need that help. Yeah. But the quantum, the amount of money, and the timescale in particular is, is, is just not sensibly thought through. Final question, because I know we need to move on. Uh, we're in one of the most deprived areas in the country here, and you've committed to this community over many years. What are you most proud of as you walk around your schools here? Uh, you, you end up, and you could talk about lots of things. It's a nice building, but, but, but buildings will come and go. Um, but the people that form the community... Uh, matter and so what you become most proud of is 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 big moments and little moments that are all connected with people whether it's the the teachers that develop that become uh, increasingly excellent in the practice some of them go on to leadership and influence further and wider field or you go back to the to the pupils and you can think of pupils who were on on, on track to get next to nothing who just get the first rung in life and then you've got the ones who are at the top end who, who, who you know have headed towards uh, top quality universities but fundamentally what you want at the end of it is is this person able to lead a good life for themselves mm. in relationships with others and as a wider community and we genuinely try and bring pupils through the trust through the school who are going to be positive forces and give life to the society in which we live. Mm. Uh, and that's the magic. Very inspiring. Stephen Tierney, thank you. The Ascot Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.